warm welcome to everyone in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a visitor this morning, we're so thankful that you're here. Our mission here at CBC is to know Christ and to make Him known. And our desire for you as a, as a guest, as a visitor, is that you would be encouraged today and that you'd be challenged in your walk with Christ. And if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation for you. And if you're looking for a church home, we welcome you here. And if you want more information about our church, you can go to the welcome desk at the end of this service and get more information. Go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Philippians 2. Last week I told you that we were going to be exploring this notion of Jesus' exaltation for two weeks. Well, we're going to add a third week. There was just too much to put in to this one sermon. So we will conclude our study of Christ's exaltation next week. So this is part two. This week is part two of Christ's exaltation. One of my great passions in life is theology. This passion has led me to seminary, to doctoral work, and ultimately here this morning to preach. My greatest passion in life is that you would see God rightly and that vision of God would radically transform your life. That as God reveals himself to your mind, that your heart would take shape and your heart would humble itself before God. Now there are many challenges to theology in our day, and one of the challenges that occurs even in evangelical churches is the challenge that theology is not important, that doctrine does not matter, that theology is for the ivory tower, it's for the seminary. And what we really need, what real ministry is, is about loving and serving others. And theology is a distraction from ministry. And if there's one goal I have in life for this church, it's to constantly show you why that type of thinking is wrong. Doctrine and theology and who God is fuels our obedience. It is the lifeblood of discipleship. And this morning what I want to show you is that through Christ's exaltation, this morning we're going to be dealing with a lot of theology, there is tremendous application to this idea of Jesus being exalted. The first part of the sermon we're going to explore doctrine, going to further explore what Paul teaches in Philippians 2.9 about Christ's exaltation, and we're going to end with a point of application, and I want you to see throughout that we cannot get to application except through theology. We cannot get to us humbling ourselves without first seeing Jesus humble his, himself. So that's where we're headed. And our text this morning is Philippians 2.9. I was, prior to studying this passage this week, I was going to cr try to cram in all of verses 9, 10, and 11. And there's just too much here. So we need to go hit the brakes a little bit and go a little bit slower. 2.9, Philippians 2.9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now last week we explored in detail what this notion of exaltation is. Last week I talked about that Christ's exaltation can be understood 
with a metaphor, excuse me, two weeks ago. <laughs> I, get, I, I, I become forgetful. Two weeks ago, we explored Christ's exaltation and his humiliation. And last week, we explored his exaltation. And there was four steps in this ladder. The first step was his descent into the abyss. And then it was his resurrection. And then it was his ascension. And ultimately, his enthronement. That's what we explored last week. And if you missed that sermon last week, I would encourage you to go listen to it via our YouTube channel or podcast. Now this week, we're going to actually study what Paul says here. Last week was kind of a large theological exploration of exaltation. And this week we're honing in on verse 9. And there's three points for you this morning to further understand Christ's exaltation as Paul presents it here. And for this first point, write this. The basis of Christ's exaltation. The basis. Now for this point, I'm just going to hone in on one word in verse 9. And that word is right at the beginning. I want you guys to see in the text what I'm talking about. Look in verse 9. What is the first word there? Therefore. Therefore, my whole point here, this first point, is built upon this word. Anytime you see a therefore in any type of literature, a good way to understand the therefore is by asking the question, what is the therefore, therefore? It's kind of a cute way to understand how to read therefores. And therefores are used to link ideas. Paul is using it here to establish a link between verse 9 and what precedes it. So verse 9 is about Christ's exaltation. Verse 9 is providing the ultimate conclusion to some idea that precedes verse 9. Now what is the idea that is serving to undergird verse 9? A different way to ask the same question is why is Jesus exalted? In verse Philippians 2.9, why is Jesus exalted? Now the answer to that question is found in verses 7 and 8. Read with me there. But emptied himself, but Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Verse 8, he humbled himself. So I want us to capture that idea of Jesus humbling himself. So verse 8 says that Jesus humbled himself. Verse 9 says, therefore, God exalted him. And the idea is simple. Verse 9 is based upon verse 8. The content of verse 9 is based upon the content of verse 8. And the content of verse 8, excuse me, the content of verse 9 is Jesus' exaltation. The reason why Jesus was exalted is found in verse 8, is due to his humbling himself. We could state it like this. This is what Paul is saying here. The reason why God the Father exalted his Son, what Paul is saying here, God the Father exalted his Son because his Son humbled himself in obedience. That's the idea. Verse 8, Jesus humbles himself. 
the result is that God the Father exalts him. And we get all of that from this therefore. This therefore is very important. And there are other passages, passages in Scripture where a similar idea is taught, taught both in the Old and New Testament. Go to Isaiah 53 with me. Verse 10. Isaiah 53. And what we're going to be looking for in Isaiah 53 is the idea of Jesus' humbling himself resulting in his exaltation. The reason why the Father exalts the Son is because the Son humbled himself. That's what we're looking for. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The him here is Jesus. The Lord here is the Father. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities look at verse 12 what is this word here therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors now let me make a parenthesis right here Isaiah 53, if you are not a Christian, if you do not believe that the gospel is true, if you do not believe that the Bible is true, if you believe that what the Bible teaches is wrong or that Jesus did not rise from the dead, if you object to Christianity, I would encourage you strongly to deal with Isaiah 53. To illustrate the power of this passage, I've shared with you this story. I think it's pertinent to share it one more time. When I was in Dallas, I worked a job, and I worked with many non-Christians. Some of them were very hostile to Christianity. And one day, I asked one of these non-Christians to listen to Isaiah 53, and I read this passage to him. And I asked him the question, who is this talking about? And his answer was Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. Now, the reason why that's very important is because the book of Isaiah was written hundreds of years prior to Jesus. Yet, we see that there is a specificity here about what Jesus has done for us that far exceeds any natural explanation. And so, non-Christian, if you are here this morning, I would encourage you strongly to wrestle with what this is saying in light of what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. How is it, if this is not true, if this is not divine revelation, if this is not God's mind telling us events that, telling us beforehand how events will transpire, if it is not the case, then how, how, how do we understand it? Wrestle with Isaiah 53. Now to our point, the basis of Christ's exaltation, verse 12 there's a therefore here and a because. Now let's jump down to the because in the middle of verse 12. 
because he poured out his soul to death. Now, this, this notion of pouring out his soul to death is Jesus' humiliation, him dying on the cross. It's a foretelling of Jesus dying on the cross. Now, this word because is linking Jesus' death to another idea. And that idea precedes it. I will divide him right at the beginning of verse 12. I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is talking about military, a military conquest. And after a warrior completes his conquest, he has spoils, he has rewards, and he inherits those rewards due to his activities of conquering. And the author of Isaiah is describing Jesus' exaltation in terms of a military conquest. So right at the beginning of verse 12, the author, Isaiah, is talking about Jesus' exaltation. Now putting these two ideas together. Therefore, I will exalt the son. I will divide him a portion with the many. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death. That is the same idea that Paul is teaching in Philippians 2.9. The father exalts the son because the son humbled himself in obedience. One more passage. Go to Hebrews 2.9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Here we have another because. So there is a logical relationship between the idea that precedes the because and the idea that follows it. Now what are these two ideas? Notice beforehand, before the because... Jesus crowned with glory and honor. What idea is that? That's his exaltation. Jesus now sits on a throne. And this crown is talking about his authority. Jesus is in authority position right now. Now why is Jesus crowned with glory and honor? Because of the suffering of death. His humiliation. So once again we see we see it in Isaiah, we see it in Philippians, and we see it in Hebrews. Jesus is exalted because he obeyed the Father. Jesus' excuse me, Jesus' humiliation results in his exaltation. Jesus' exaltation is based upon his humiliation. Now, many Christians struggle with this because they think, how is it that God, Jesus being God, can be exalted? And we touched upon this last week, and if you have that question, please listen to the sermon last week. But I want you to see from all of Scripture, from Old Testament and New Testament, the Bible teaches that Jesus' exaltation is based upon his humiliation. That Jesus himself, as a man, had to obey. He had to obey the Father. And that as a result of his obedience... 
the Father has highly exalted him. So that's our first point. The basis of Christ's exaltation and the answer, that what, what is the basis? The, the basis is his humiliation. Go back to 2.9, Philippians 2.9. The point is this, the nature of Christ's exaltation. First point, the basis. Second point, the nature of Christ's exaltation. What I'm going to be focusing on for this point is this last statement when Paul says, therefore God, dot, 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 bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's what I'm going to be focusing on here. We dealt with this highly exalted him last week, and now we're going to deal with this bestowal. What does it mean that the Father bestowed upon the Son a name? What is this referencing? Now, I'm going to take this in a bit different way than you might think. Some commentators, some Bible teachers, take this statement about this bestowal of a name, they take it as that the Father bestowed upon Jesus the name Lord. And they get that from verse 11. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They teach that, these, these good Bible teachers, many good evangelical Bible teachers teach this, that at his resurrection, at his ascension, that the Father bestowed upon the Son the title Lord. Now, I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to take that interpretation this morning. And my reasoning is this. This reference to Lord, this gets technical, but follow, follow with me. Whenever the Bible, whenever the New Testament uses the term Lord, the Greek word is kurios. Kurios. If you were to read the Greek Old Testament, what you would find is any time the name of God is used, that name is Yahweh, any time the name Yahweh is used in the Greek Old Testament, what those authors, the word that they would use would be Lord. And what many commentators think is that this notion of Jesus Christ as Lord is a reference to, to Jesus being considered Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. Now, there's a problem with that that I see. And the problem is that it suggests that Jesus was not always Yahweh. If he is granted this, then it assumes at one time he was not this. And for that reason, I object, it, object to it. And even in his earthly life, Jesus is referenced to as Yahweh, as Lord. Go to John 8 with me. Excuse me, John 12. John 12. Verse 39. I do not believe that Jesus was given the name Lord. I do not believe that that's what Paul was, is teaching in Philippians 2.9. Because Jesus always has been Lord. And he always has been Yahweh. And that's what John teaches. 
John 12, 39. Therefore, they could not believe. This they is referring to the Pharisees. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Specifically, look at verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now we have to answer the question, who is this his in verse 41? Who is this his? The his here is Jesus. What I, another way to, to translate what John is saying here, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of Jesus. Now this is very interesting. This Old Testament passage in verse 40 comes from Isaiah 6. If you go read Isaiah 6 in the Old Testament, Isaiah does not mention Jesus. He uses the name Yahweh. As Isaiah sees it in Isaiah 6, he says that I saw the Lord, Yahweh, lifted up. But what does John say? How does John interpret it? John says that Isaiah saw Jesus. And this is the way we put them together. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is identified as the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is Lord here, even in his earthly ministry. Jesus is Yahweh. This is not something that is granted to Jesus. This is something that Jesus has always had. Jesus existed in Isaiah 6. So he can't be given this name Lord because he's all, always been Lord. So that's why I don't think that we can take this reference to Jesus' name in Philippians 2.9 as Lord. Now turn back with me to Philippians 2. So pastor, if I'm not supposed to take it that way, if I'm not supposed to understand it in that manner, how should I understand it? It's always easier to criticize than it is to give an answer. Amen? So I, I'm going to try to give you an answer for this passage. The way I take it is what the Father bestows upon Jesus is not technically a name. Rather, I think it's better understood that what the Father bestows upon Jesus is a reputation. What the Father bestows upon Jesus is not a name, but a reputation. Now, name and reputation oftentimes go hand in hand. If I were to tell my son, son, whenever you grow up, you have to make a name for yourself. I'm not really telling my son to go make a name. I'm not telling my son to go to the courthouse and change his name. Rather, I'm telling him to make the family proud. Make the Sumner name great. And all of that has to deal with reputation. I'm not actually literally telling my son to change his name. I'm telling him to live in a way in which whenever people hear the name Sumner, that there is a great reputation to that name. And that's the idea that I think Paul is teaching here. What the Father has done 
for his son is that he has bestowed upon the son a reputation above all reputations. That's what I think Paul is saying here. That's what the nature of Christ's exaltation is in this passage. And I think a good way to understand this is to think about Jesus' reputation before his exaltation and after his exaltation. Prior to his exaltation, Jesus was seen as a righteous man, even a Messiah. Jesus was seen as the Messiah. But his reputation took a severe blow as Messiah when he was crucified. That was seen as the absolute worst event that can happen to you. His reputation was severely tarnished. Now, at the resurrection, his reputation radically changed. The Bible says that Jesus is both a lamb and a what? And a lion. In his earthly ministry, in his humiliation, prior to his exaltation, Jesus was a lamb. He was meek, mild. He came to suffer. But all of that changed when Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Jesus is not just a lamb, he is a lion. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what the Father has done for the Son is the Father has bestowed upon him this reputation as Lord. He did not change his identity, but he gave him a new reputation. Jesus was lamb, and now, due to his exaltation, he is both lion and lamb. That's what I think Paul is saying here. The Father bestowed upon him a reputation that is above all reputations. Now for our application. This is why theology is practical. The last point, write this. The relevance of Christ's exaltation. First point, the basis of it. The second point, the nature of it. And third, the relevance of Christ's exaltation. Pastor, what on earth does this have to do with me? A lot. This point of Jesus' humiliation resulting in his exaltation has tremendous relevance to your life. Paul does not give a command in verse 9. In Philippians 2.9, there is no command. But taking a step back and understanding Jesus' exaltation through the lens of all of Scripture, what it is that we see here is that Jesus' pattern of humiliation and exaltation is the pattern for all people. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 12. Now this is Jesus. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
Philippians 2, verse 9. There is an embedded point of application. And the embedded point of application is that if you humble yourself, God the Father will exalt you. If you follow Jesus in giving up your life, God will highly exalt you. What is true of Jesus in this passage is also true for us. If we choose to live our lives for ourselves, if we choose to make much of ourselves in this life, Jesus says that we will be humbled. This is a reference to judgment. God will shame us forever. However, if we choose in this life to not make much of ourselves, but to make much of Jesus Christ and to make much of others, therefore God will highly exalt you. That's the application here. This narrative, this story of Jesus humbling himself and being exalted is the story for us. And I want you to see here that to hum- in humbling yourself, you do lose. You, do, you will experience loss. If you choose to live a life in which you make little of yourself and you make much of others and Jesus Christ, you will experience loss in this life. But that loss does not compare to what it is you will gain. What it is that God can do for you far exceeds your own ability to do for yourself. What God will do if you choose to live a life of humble service and obedience to Jesus is that the Father will take your cares and concerns into His own hands. And God is infinitely more able to provide for you than you are able to provide for yourself. In humbling yourself, you lose nothing valuable. And what you gain is the infinite God. I've I've spoken of this quote before, but it is so apt to use it right now. I'm going to be repeating myself. I've, I've used this before in another sermon. But it is such a fitting quote. This is from Jonathan Edwards. This is my absolute, if you were to ask me, what is the favorite, your favorite quote you've ever read outside of scripture? This would be it. Jonathan Edwards, in talking about the same point of gaining through humiliation, being exalted through humble, hum, humility, he says this, if you will devote yourself to God as making a sacrifice of your own interest to him, You will not throw yourself away. Though you seem to neglect yourself and to deny yourself, God will take care of you. 
and he will see to it that your own interest shall be provided for. God will make your interest and happiness his duty. And he is infinitely more able to provide for you and to promote you than you are able to do for yourself. In humbling ourselves, in following the pattern that Jesus establishes in Philippians 2, what it is that we gain far outweighs what it is that we lose. And the appeal of the Christian life, the reason why you need to be a Christian, and the reason why you need to give all of it up for Jesus, is that in doing that, you gain something that you can never gain by yourself. You will experience loss. But the loss is so overwhelmed and overcome by what it is that you gain. And the application is to humble yourself. Humble yourself. There are a myriad of ways to humble yourself. But mainly, it is to give to others and to Jesus everything. To not hold anything back, to say, Lord, this is mine. You can have it all except this. What the Lord wants to do is he wants to peel back our fingers so that we say, take it. It is all yours. And dear friend, by giving it all to him, what you gain infinitely outweighs what it is that you lose. We must follow Jesus in his humiliation, and by doing, the Father will exalt us. Father, yes, we, we praise you. We thank you for the example of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his love for us. We thank you for his mercy and his compassion. Father, we thank you that he descended to the cross for us. And Father, we thank you for keeping your word to your son, that those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Father, we stand under the lordship of Christ, and this morning we recognize and we confess that Jesus is Lord. But Father, oftentimes we hold on to our sins, we hold on to our possessions and we give half-hearted obedience. Father, we do pray for a work in our hearts. We pray that you would illumine our minds to see that in following Christ and humbling ourselves, we lose nothing and we gain everything. Father, we confess this morning that your word is true, but we need your gracious help to obey. Father, by the Spirit, we ask for your tremendous power in this church. I pray that you would comfort the discouraged, that you would warn the apathetic, 
And Father, that you would change us all. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Ushers, if you'll join me at the front. At this time, we're going to be partaking of communion. Communion is a sign and symbol of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us. And at CBC, we welcome all Christians to partake of this cup. And in communion, we see that Jesus has given himself for us. Dear friend, Jesus has given himself for you. And our response is to follow him. And the way we follow him, one way we follow him as a corporate gathering is we partake and celebrate the Lord's Supper. At this time, we will pass out the elements. And just take one cup. The bread is underneath the juice, so there's only need to take one cup.